Okay, so Matthew chapter 2. Last week, um, we, we started a brief Christmas excursus from our studies in Daniel. And we used uh, the, uh, the passage here in Matthew 2 as a launch pad for that excursus. Specifically, we were looking at these wise men, the Magi, who have come from the east... Um, asking to see the king of the Jews. They did so because they saw uh, his star when it rose and they have come to worship him. And this caused Herod the king to be troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And he calls the chief priests and the scribes and the experts in the law and they gather together and say, no, no, the king of the Jews is going to be born in Bethlehem. And then they see the star again that leads them to the place where Jesus is. Now, just to re-present some of the issues there in that text, for those of you who weren't here, we, we have lots of traditional misunderstandings regarding this passage. There weren't three kings. In fact, king is a, is a, is a key word in this passage, but the kings being referenced here are King Herod... And Jesus, who's king of the Jews. The wise men aren't kings. And yet we, well not we, but many people are seeing every year we three kings of Orient are. And of course, the east wasn't the Orient either, it was Babylonia. So there's so many misunderstandings to come. But the three comes from the gifts. The gold, frankincense and myrrh. That's where the three comes from. And as I said last time, I do believe that the Daniel being made head of the Babylonian school of astrology and the occult and science and, and these kinds of things, that, that there was set within that group this desire to see the king. The king who is the one that was prophesied of by Nebuchadnezzar. That Nebuchadnezzar had this dream that God chose him to have. That he, Nebuchadnezzar, was given a dream that prophesied the coming of the ultimate king. Daniel later on, and it's a little tricky because I really want to save this for when we get there in the book of Daniel. But Daniel, a little bit later on, tells us specifically that the king will come 483 years after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And so, not only as we saw last time, did they know that there was a star that was associated with the coming of this king, but also they knew pretty much when that was going to happen. So as I said last time, I don't think there were a handful of magi who were, well, you know, you guys, you, you, you can go and, and see the coming of the king. Their existence... Only, they're only alive because Daniel preserved their life through the prophecy of the coming king. They have been waiting for the prophecy of the coming king. Daniel would have explained the connection with the prophecy of their ancestor, Balaam, to the coming king. He, Daniel would have shared with them all the prophecies that we saw last time from the book of Psalms and from Isaiah that spoke of him being king. And I bet you every last one of them 
wanted to be there to go and see the king. And they made the journey, which would have taken at least a year, if not longer. So shepherds were long since gone. And uh, they got to come and see the king. Now, last time we went through, we saw the passage in the book of Numbers talking about the star. We focused predominantly on the fact that the one who was coming, uh, we focused on two things. Firstly, we focused on his lineage. He was going to be a man, the seed of a woman. He was going to come through Abraham. He was going to come through Isaac and Jacob. He was going to come through Judah. He was going to come through David. And there was this narrowing of the messianic line. And we went through the prophecies concerning that. One thing that I don't think we did mention last time, which is quite important, is that the Jewish genealogical records, who belonged to which family and to which tribe, was kept and maintained by the Jews in the temple. When the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, there was no record anymore. It was all gone. In other words... If God is saying in his word, the Messiah has to come through this line, then the only time that you could prove that the Messiah had come from that line was prior to 70 AD. The Messiah had to have come before then. The other line of reasoning that we followed last week was we saw that this Messiah, this promised one who was going to come, was going to be a king. And we focused on... First Chronicles 7 and Second Samuel, uh, sorry, First Chronicles 17 and Second Samuel 7 that spoke of the prophecies of the descendant king of David, firstly Solomon and then of course of Jesus. And we looked heavily at Psalm 2, Psalm 110, and we saw that the one who was coming was going to be king. And I hope that as we look at these kind of things, when we kind of more and more in the coming weeks start to sing Christmas carols and the old songs, then these references to king and, and the references to the long-promised one and what have you, all of these things start to come together. Now this morning, I want to continue on this theme of the predictions of the one who was coming. And I want to look at two other lines. Firstly, I want to look at the thread, the line as it were, that the one who was coming was going to be both God and man. He was going to be both God and man. And then secondly, I want to look at the thread that he who comes will also be one who suffers. Now, as we come into that, and we'll do it chronologically to some degree, but as we come and look at that, I want us to understand this. That this was the hardest thing for the Jews to accept. That he would be God. And then that if he was God, that God could in some way suffer or die. These were were things that they just couldn't reason with or rationalize. But yet, these were things that were prophesied throughout their history. So let's have a look. Um, As we look chronologically... I think it would be helpful for us to go back to the book of Psalms. So let's turn to the Psalms and let's turn to Psalm 16. When when we uh, last time were in, as I said, in the uh, Davidic covenant in 1 Chronicles 17, 2 Samuel 7, um, we saw how this 
parallelism. There is going to be a, a descendant of David who will build the temple, Solomon, who will sin and be forgiven. And then there is another descendant of David who will also build temples, but will not sin whose kingdom will never end. He's the one through whom the Davidic kingdom will never end. And uh, when we understand that, as I said last time, we come to the book of Psalms and we see this parallelism right the way through the book of Psalms. David says, I suffer, at the same point the Messiah is suffering. David says, you know, you're doing this to me and the same thing is going to happen to the Messiah. That parallelism is right the way through the Psalms and it finds its basis in the Davidic covenant. In the fact that there was a Davidic covenant given to Solomon and one given to Christ. And we find that right the way through the Psalms. We saw that in uh, Psalm 1, Psalm 2 and what have you. And we're going to see it again in Psalm 16. Psalm 16. So let's have a look there, if you're there now. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom, all is, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. But indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord, Yahweh, who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set Yahweh always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. Your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore, forevermore. As you read through Psalm 16, you can read this and see that this is David speaking about circumstances in his life. But you can also see that this is speaking of the other eternal Davidic king as well. Again, it's that parallelism that even by Psalm 16 is pretty well established. It's interesting here that in a passage that is the first real hint of the suffering of the Messiah, well, not the, the first first, but the first in the, perhaps in the Psalms, um, of course, the first passage that deals with the suffering of the Messiah, we dealt with last time, Genesis 3. You will, he will crush his head and he will bruise his heel. The bruising of the heel implies a suffering of the seed of the woman. But here in this passage, David is asking for refuge. He, he's uh, the one who, who is, is uh, needing that. And in the context of suffering, we have in verse 5 a reference to my cup. And of course, Jesus uses the same imagery in Gethsemane when he speaks about his suffering. But the verse that is so crucial here is here, verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol... Or let your Holy One see corruption. That's just one of those really deep verses that has so much meaning. 
And, and from David's perspective, you won't abandon me to Sheol. Sheol was the place of the dead. And so with David, there was a sense in which in the midst of his persecution, he knew that God was going to protect him. Particularly when David was persecuted early on. He, uh, he had been anointed as king, and yet he hadn't yet been, become king. He hadn't yet taken the throne. And God had promises to him regarding his, his kingship, regarding his, his dynasty. And therefore, we know that David at that point could not die. David was going to be protected from death. But here as well, with regards to the Davidic king, the Messiah, it says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Essentially, you won't abandon my soul to death. There is here at least an illusion, a, a, a nudge, an implication that, that there is the, the, the threat of him going to death, but not being abandoned there. Now that alone, you wouldn't be able to read a fully-fledged theology of the Messiah's suffering, but it's certainly an interesting hint. When you go a little further in the Psalms, you come to Psalm 22. And this is one that will be a lot more familiar to you, no doubt. Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, it begins with these wonderful words from Jesus upon the cross. That he quotes this verse when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We've mentioned this, I think, a few weeks back, that... There are, amongst the Psalms, the grouping of the Psalms, beginning in book two of the Psalms, with the Psalms of the sons of Korah, that are often known as the Elohim Psalms. That for most of the book of Psalms, God, who is being praised because of his covenant relationship with Israel, he is called Yahweh, Yahweh this, Yahweh that, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. In our English Bibles, typically, capital Lord, L-O-R-D, in capital letters. The Hebrew Yahweh, speaking to God by his name, because they had covenant relationship with him. But then there's this part of the Psalms uh, where it be, we, we go into the, the, the Elohim Psalms, where he's just referred to as God. And Psalm 22 is the first little hint of what is coming in that regard. That when God is distant and seems far off, he is Elohim. He's in the realm of the heavenly beings. He's not close. He's not near. It's not necessarily that the covenant relationship's not there. It's just that it doesn't seem to be. And that's the context of Psalm 22. That remember that this is a psalm of David. This is David speaking. And the psalm begins with the expression, and your Bibles may differ wildly at this point, but remember that in the psalms, there is almost always a verse zero. There are these little um, descriptions that come at the beginning of the psalm that we often skim over. And these are inspired text, friends. For some reason in the English Bible... When numbers were assigned to verses, something that happened many, many, many centuries after the time of Christ. In fact, we've had far more centuries when we haven't had verses, uh, verse numbers than we have where we, than centuries when we have had verse numbers. So it's a very late addition. But for some reason, when the verses were given in English, verse 1 was assigned after these descriptions. In the Hebrew text, it's not the case. Verse 1 is the description. 
And these are inspired and they must not be skimmed over. Now, as I say, your text may wildly differ here, but my version here in the ESV that I'm using, um, it says to the choir master. To the choir master. Now, in the original, in the original Hebrew, it literally says to the preeminent one, to the most important one, to the exalted one. Now, when you have a group of descriptions which often say to this tune or on stringed instruments, then the one who is the most exalted one in the context of music could be understood to be the choir master or as we might say in modern parlance, the worship leader. This is the, to the worship leader. But another way of understanding it, one that I have uh, argued um, while we've been doing the Psalms in, in the gaps between other books, is that the preeminent one in the context of the Psalms broadly is the one who is most exalted in the Psalms. <laughs> the one who is the central subject of the Psalms, which is the coming king. That's how the Psalms began. It began with Psalms 1 and 2, all about the coming king. So I suspect, as do many others, that this expression to the preeminent one is not to any sort of musical director or choir master or worship leader, but it's a little line to us to say, we're talking about the Messiah here. This is David talking, but we're talking about the Messiah here. Now that happens a lot anyway, but it seems as in the ones that specifically say to the preeminent one that it is particularly so, particularly strong. And so, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, are the words of David in the midst of his suffering. But there is an awareness, even as it is written, that this is also something that is not just about this particular Davidic king, but about the preeminent Davidic king as well. And that's certainly an interpretation that Jesus agrees with, because when he's on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I don't want to get too distracted because we're kind of leading up to Christmas here and not to Easter. But nonetheless, the one who's coming is coming to suffer. And that's our theme this morning, or part of our theme. So I want us to understand this just in passing. Many people say that when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That what he's saying is that God has forsaken him. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying at all. As a look at Psalm 22 will show us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, and I find no rest. The first two verses clearly indicate the situation. And the situation is that there is a perception that God has forsaken. Why is there that perception? Because you seem far away from the words of my groaning. Why does he seem far away? Because I cry, and you don't reply. And the lament psalms are so often, as we've said, begin with this cry of acknowledgement of pain and of reality and of how someone is feeling. And we need to be aware that when they do that, that often what they're expressing is how they feel. Now, I know men in particular need to hear this message. I know I, I could have done with hearing this a few decades ago. But... You know, we are so, sometimes all, you know, ladies, you can be like this as well, but sometimes we can be so intent on being factual that somebody just says, oh, you know, the, everything is going against me right now. And then you're very quick to say, well, actually, technically it's not. 
I mean, nine things might be going against you, but actually, look, there's this one thing that isn't going against you, and we can get really technical, can't we? And precise. Rather than understanding that what this person is actually really saying is, I'm completely overwhelmed because so many things are going, seem to be going against me, and this is putting a burden on me, and I feel, I feel hurt, and I feel shattered, and I feel confused by this. And we sometimes need to read between the lines. And even within the Psalms, there is a degree of poetic license where people are, are saying things that aren't necessarily factually true. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we get to the end of the Psalm, it becomes abundantly clear that David does not believe that God has forsaken him. So why does he say it? Because what he's saying is communicating. It feels like you've forsaken me because I'm crying out and nothing is happening. And so he goes on to say, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and they were rescued in you they trusted and they were not put to shame. So he goes back to those who cried out to God previously. People who cried out to God and God didn't hear. People who cried out to God and God didn't respond. And they kept crying out and God did respond. Crying out to God is not a magic spell. It's not an abracadabra. We don't cry out to God and then say, boom, done, there it is. We cried out to God and immediately this happened. There is the act of faith where we cry out and nothing happens and we cry out and nothing happens and we cry out and we cry out and we cry out and we cry out and we we keep crying out not because we believe that something is immediately going to happen but because we're crying out to the one who can make something happen and the one who loves us and cares for us. And so there is this crying out that he recalls and how the people of God were never put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And so it is that when we trust in God, that people can mock us when God doesn't come. Because they know that we trust in God. And so it is that he is scorned and despised. And yet, it's that yet again, like it was in verse 3, yet in verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Can you see how he's starting to shift? He's starting to say, I've learned to trust you. They trusted you. I've learned to trust you. I've got to trust you. But right now, there's nobody near to help. Right now, there's no answer. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lion. The Bashan is associated with the worship of false gods, from our perspective, demonic beings. He's basically saying, like a Christian would say, the enemy is firing against me. That's kind of what's going on there. 
I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. How much of this is familiar to us in the reality of its fulfillment? The piercing of his hands, the casting of lots... There is a suffering that goes on. And it's as if David begins with his own state of suffering. And as he progresses, he progresses into the Messiah's suffering. What's the message there? What's the thought that's going on in all of that? It's simply this. That the suffering of God's saints does not mean that God's forsaken them. Because even if, if this Davidic king is suffering, and even the great final Davidic king is going to suffer, then we need to know and understand that God can redeem any one of us from the midst of our suffering. Because look at the end of this psalm, it's marvellous. But you, O Yahweh, do not be far off. May you help, come, uh, O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword from the precious life, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. You offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cries to him. Do you see the development here? It begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But as he recalls how God has been faithful in the past. As he recalls how God has been trustworthy in his own life. As he looks to the future suffering and how that is not the end then he can cry out to him again and he can say I know you haven't hidden your face from me and that you have heard my cry context friends is everything absolutely everything I'm sure many of you know what it is to cry out to God to feel like God is distant far away to feel like your prayers aren't being answered To feel like he's not there. To feel forsaken. But you know, theologically, that he has not forsaken you. You know that there is this place where he has heard your prayer, though he has not yet answered you. You know that his face has not been hidden from you. You know this. Now we have this kind of balance, don't we? There needs to be a place where we, like the psalmist, can be free to acknowledge our pain and say, oh, this is terrible and this is awful and all this is going on. And there may be some poetic license as we do so. And I don't think that we should be corrected immediately, but I do think that we need to get round to the realities. You know what? No, everything isn't against me. My God has not forsaken me. He has not hidden his face from me. All of this is to say, as we come to the end, and I'll, I, I, I'm going to spend too much time in this psalm, I've got others to do, so I need to keep moving. 
but look at the end, uh, verse 27, all the ends of the earth to remember, turn to Yahweh. Verse 28, for kingship belongs to Yahweh and he rules over nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. There was one who died, but yet he continues. There was one who went to death, and yet he goes on. There is here, I think, not merely uh, a saving from death, but there is an allusion to a resurrection. And so the suffering of the Messiah was something that was clearly there even in the Psalms. And then we come to the book of Isaiah. And this is really where we need to be. Let's go to Isaiah 7. Now we come to some familiar Christmas passages. David read one for us this morning in Isaiah 7, which is where we begin in Isaiah. And I want us to see a few things here. Without spending a huge amount of time in Isaiah 7, I've done this previously, you can go back to our Isaiah studies and look at that. I want you to simply understand that when we come to Isaiah 7 and verse 10, that Ahaz is asked to, uh, or is told he can ask a sign from God, and he says he won't put God to the test. And it sounds very grand, and it sounds very noble, but it's really exactly the opposite. He's, he's actually um, disobeying here. And again, we've dealt with it in more detail elsewhere. But I just want you to note this. He is asked in the singular, for, so he is told he can ask in the singular for a sign from God, and he refuses it. In verse 13, hear then, O house of David. So now we have a shift. Ahaz, who is the king, who is in the house of David, you may have a sign. Oh, no, no, I'm not going to have a sign. Okay, now listen then, entire house of David. We've gone from a singular king to the house of David in its entirety. We've gone from singular to plural. House of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The yous here are plural. The house of David through its king has wearied God and the house of David, plural, are going to have a sign. Behold, the virgin, the virgin. There is a d- definite article here. Now again, we've dealt with this in depth elsewhere. The, the, some will try and say that it was just some young woman who was pregnant by natural means and what have you. And we've dealt with that in the past. You can go back and look at that sermon. But the point here is simply this. That the virgin here, when it is clearly a virgin, it was translated into Greek 200 years before the time of Christ with a Greek word that can only mean virgin. So it was clearly understood that way pre-Christ. The virgin here is a specific one. It is one that is known. It is one that is known about. One that, that, that they would have known of. Who is this famous young woman who is going to give birth as a virgin? That's the seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15. That's what's being referenced here. And so the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. That's the son who is coming. He is the one who is going to be God with us. So immediately, I want us to see this. 
There is a miracle that is going to happen to the house of David. That a virgin, not any virgin, the virgin, the one that we've been waiting for from the beginning, that whole train that we've been following, Genesis 3.15, right the way through the Psalms and the prophets, all of this line, the one that we've been waiting for, he's going to be born of a virgin and his name is going to be God with us. That in this one who comes, through him, God is going to be with us. Now that alone does not speak of the deity of the Messiah, but it is a strong nudge. But more so, Isaiah chronologically comes after many of the Psalms that have already spoken of his deity. So I think that at that point we can certainly read that. Now, when we go ahead a little further to um, Isaiah... um, Chapter 8, there is more prophecies in chapter 8. There's more concerns about the destruction of Jerusalem. And then we have a few things said. Verse, uh, let's pick it up in verse 7, or halfway through verse 7. It will... uh, It will rise over its channels, go over its banks, it will sweep into Judah, it will overflow and pass it on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. There is judgment coming, overflowing judgment that is coming, and it will fill the land, and who does the land belong to? Emmanuel. Who's Emmanuel? He's the child that's born in chapter 7. That land is his land. The one who is born of a virgin is the coming king to whom the land belongs. But keep reading. Be broken, you peoples. Be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor. Be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For, and many versions say God is with us. It translates it. It literally says, for Emmanuel. Hey, you guys, you plot, you plan, you... You plan your taking of Jerusalem. You plan your your conquering. You plan your taking away of the house of David. But it won't come to anything. Why? Because Emmanuel. Because the Messiah. That's his land. That's his people. That's his kingdom. Then we come to chapter 9 of Isaiah. When after the judgment, we mentioned this a while ago. There is a great light that's going to come to the northern lands who've suffered all of these, these armies traipsing through them and destroying their cities. And we're told here that the time is coming in um, verse 4. The yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. You have broken us on the day of Midian. Uh, every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The day is coming when these northern territories will have victory over their enemies. Whenever the enemies came into Jerusalem, they would come through the northern territories. They were taken, they were taken, they were taken. Ah, oh, Jerusalem's saved. Hallelujah. Somebody else comes. They're taken, they're taken, they're taken, they're taken. Jerusalem's saved. Hallelujah. Not much hallelujah for the people of the northern kingdoms. Every single time they're getting taken out. They were a people who lived in a land of great darkness. 
But light was going to come to them, and there was going to be victory. Why will there be victory? We're told why in verse, in verse uh, 6. For unto us a child is born. In the context of Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 8, it's absolutely clear who that one is. That is the one that is born of a virgin. That is Emmanuel. That is the one who is the coming king. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder. So it is clear that he is going to be this promised king. We've seen numerous prophecies about this king. They all knew the king was coming. And now we're told that this child, this specific child, God with us, that he is the one who will have this kingdom. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Every single one of those points to his deity, some more than others. Wonderful counsellor. The king is the one who will give counsel. That's clear from Psalm 1 as much as anything else. But the word wonderful is not the usual word for wonderful. It is a particular word for wonderful that is only ever used of God. God will counsel through this one. Secondly, he is specifically called Mighty God. You cannot have a clearer statement. The coming Messiah will be God. There are still those out there who are told that, oh, you know, the, the Christians deifying Jesus. It happened centuries after the, after the church was founded. It was some council of, of some, some church leaders sometime in the second, third, fourth century, depending on which myth you listen to. The Messiah is here called Mighty God. The deity of Christ is an Old Testament doctrine. Cannot say it enough times. Everlasting Father. It means that he is the the father, the the originator of everything that is everlasting and eternal. Something that can only be true of God. And God is the one who brings peace. Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. So his kingdom will be eternal. We know this is a Davidic king. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and hold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. And so again, we see the kingship, we see the deity, and we see it all on the one who is born of a virgin. Now, if we go a little bit further, let's go to Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50. Towards the end of the book. There's so much more in Isaiah that we could do. I don't want to to overdo it as it were. I want to keep skimming through these. This is a very interesting one in light of Christmas. It's talking about his, his suffering in a sense. But it's also interesting with regards to Christmas. Look at Isaiah 50 and verse 4. The Lord God... So Yahweh Adonai has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Yahweh God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. 
Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who's my adversary? Let him come near me. Behold, Yahweh God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Here we have a passage concerning the servant. And another theme of the Messiah in the book of Isaiah is that he is Yahweh's servant. And here in this, in this passage, we're told that he is going to give his back to those who strike him. Cheeks to those who pull out the beard. We see the suffering of Christ and his non-response to them. He set his face as flint because he knows that God helps him. He knows that God will vindicate him. Guys, this is 1 Peter 2 in practice. You know 1 Peter 2 where it says that Jesus suffered in trusting himself to God? The implication is that when we suffer, we have to entrust ourselves to God. We don't have to take vengeance. We don't have to make everything right. We have to trust God. The simplest thing in the Christian life is often the hardest thing. We're prepared to fight back. We're prepared to do this. We're prepared to do that. We're prepared to go to whatever lengths. But the one thing that we must do before we do anything else, in addition to anything else that we might be able to do, we have to trust God. And that is so often the hardest to do. Christ knew he was going to suffer and he trusted God. And here the suffering is prophesied well in advance. But the interesting thing in this passage in the lead up to Christmas as well is that in Luke's gospel, we're told that Jesus grew in wisdom and knowledge. This to me is one of the most bizarre things about the Messiahship of Christ. That he was fully God and fully man. So at every point of his existence from his conception... He is fully God and fully man. So Jesus was fully God even in the womb. Jesus was fully God when he was born. That's why they brought him gifts. Jesus was fully God as he went through his childhood. And yet, because he was fully man, he didn't know everything. Not in his humanity. In his deity, he was omniscient. But his brain had to develop like any human brain. He had to learn things, like any human has to learn things. And so we have this bizarre thing where those of us who are aware of all the arguments of, of the defenders of the Trinity over the centuries, we know that it's like walking through a minefield. We have to be very careful with our words and how we speak. But he was omniscient with regards to his deity, but in his humanity, he had to grow in wisdom and knowledge. And here in this passage that speaks about the coming of the servant of Yahweh and speaks about him coming and suffering, it also says that morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. There are many who believe, and I am one of them, that one of the ways, you know, let's go back a step. We know that the the Apostle Paul learnt a huge amount, the majority of what he knew, from reading the Old Testament scripture. Yeah? 
And yet, God spoke to him directly as well. We're currently going through the book of Daniel. We know that Daniel learnt most of what he knew from the Old Testament scriptures that have been written to that point. And yet, God spoke to him directly in dreams and visions. Do we think for a moment that God did not speak, God the Father did not speak to God the Son directly while he was there in his humanity? And if that is the case, which of course I'm sure it is, then when we're looking at a prophecy concerning the coming of that Messiah and how he in his humanity would come and suffer, do we not perhaps think that the reference to morning by morning he awakens me is that Jesus' devotional time was conducted day by day by the Father? Might that not explain why he was able, by the age of 12, to instruct the rabbis in the, in the aspects of the law? Because he had been taught by the Father directly. It's a fascinating little verse that, that may well be pointing in that direction. And then while we're in these passages, and I won't spend long here, because again it's Christmas, not Easter. But you will know Isaiah 52, verse 13 to 53, verse 12. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Now listen. Everybody, I, I, I think, probably, unless you're very new to the faith, everybody associates Isaiah 52, 13 to Isaiah 53, verse 12 with the suffering of the Messiah. But I want to show you here as well that our other theme for this morning, the deity of Christ, is here as well. As I said at the beginning, the Jews struggled with the deity of the Messiah. But the Jews struggled more with the suffering of a deified Messiah. And yet here, in this passage, that most clearly speaks of the suffering Messiah, it also speaks of his deity. Behold my servant, that's the servant that, we've, that Isaiah has been dealing with for many chapters. We dipped into chapter 50, he was there. This servant is the Emmanuel of the first part of Isaiah. My servant shall act wisely... He shall be high and lifted up and exalted. When did Isaiah speak about one being high and lifted up? In the year of King Uzziah's reign, ah, uh, death, rather. I saw the Lord, that's Yahweh, high and lifted up. And where was Yahweh when he was high and lifted up? He was on his throne. Where was his throne? The context of Isaiah 1 through 6. His throne was not in heaven. His throne was upon the earth. He was the king who had come to establish his kingdom. And the king who had come to establish his kingdom was Yahweh. And yet the king was going to be born of a virgin. So right the way through the book of Isaiah, we have, we have Yahweh sitting on the throne and we have a man sitting on the throne. Right the way from the beginning of Isaiah, we have a king who is Yahweh, and we have a king who is come on behalf of Yahweh. We have a king who is pre-existent, and we have a king who is born of a virgin. We have that thing, that paradox, right the way through the book of Isaiah. And when Isaiah now comes to the suffering of this Messiah, he begins the entire passage with a reference to the fact that this Messiah who is going to suffer is the one who is high and lifted up. And who is the one who is high and lifted up in the book of Isaiah? It is Yahweh himself. Who is the one who is exalted? It's Yahweh himself. 
We must not escape this. That this passage that speaks of his suffering is also a passage that speaks of his deity. And it is the one who is high and lifted up, the one who is exalted, the one who is God, is the one of whom they were astonished at the marring of his appearance, at the form that he had taken. And yet, despite his suffering, he shall sprinkle many nations, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, them they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. The salvation of many Gentiles, that's the nations, Gentiles, the salvation of many Gentiles shall come because of this one. Kings shall shut their mouths. We're back to Psalm 2. The kings rage against the one who, oh, we don't want to be bound by him. And God mocks them, and he will make them shut their mouth. But one of the ways he makes kings shut their mouths is by saving them. And that is exactly what we're going to see after Christmas when we return to the book of Daniel. We're going to see Nebuchadnezzar lifting himself up and God bringing him down until he will lift God up. And at that point, he himself will have his eyes opened. And so we have the glorious truth as we go through this that he will suffer. Verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our inequities. The suffering that has happened to him happens because of us and not because of him. Verse 6, Yahweh has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. We have connections to the Psalms that we've already referenced in Psalm 16, Psalm 22 especially. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. Another thing that is very important for us to note is verse 10. It was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. That God the Father sent the Son to die in our place for our sins. And his soul makes an offering for guilt. And then notice at the very end of this passage. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall be divided to the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many that makes intercession for the transgressors. He was numbered with sinners, and yet he bore the sins that makes intercession for those transgressors. That is one of the most beautifully worded verses in Scripture. That what he is doing here, and I think this is really the basis of when Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin for our sakes, that right here we see that substitution. That he was numbered with transgressors, but he makes intercession for the transgressors. Intercession... We, we as the modern church have associated that word too much with prayer. There is such a thing as intercession, which is prayer. You can intercede by praying. 
hey, this terrible thing is happening to this person. I want to intercede and pray, God, don't let this terrible thing happen to that person. And thus prayer can be intercession. But, but what it is more accurately and more fully is it's coming in the gap. It's stepping in between. Here are sinners. Here are sinners who are going to be under the wrath of Almighty God. And Jesus intercedes for them by stepping in the gap and taking the punishment that was their punishment so that they wouldn't have to be punished. That's intercession. I do think that sometimes when we, when we see uh, Paul speak about Jesus interceding on our behalf, we imagine Jesus kind of praying. But I think more often than not, what Paul is talking about, what he's thinking about, is he's thinking about the various ways that Jesus continues, as he sovereignly holds the universe together, to come to our aid. Practically. And so... Here we are looking at a passage of scripture written hundreds of years before the star came up in the sky. Hundreds of years before the time came when Jesus would be born as a man. And we are seeing here that there was a very clear, rich, deep understanding of the Messiah that was established in Jewish thought centuries before he came they knew that the messiah was going to come and that he would deal with sin right from genesis 3 they knew that the messiah who was coming was going to be both god and man they knew that he was going to come and be a king and have an eternal kingdom they knew that he was going to come and that he was going to suffer and that in his suffering and in his ultimate death that he would not be abandoned to Sheol, but that his death would not be permanent. And that we under- they understood that the suffering and death that he endured was going to be done as an act of intercession for sinners who were worthy of such a punishment that he himself was not worthy of. And that as he went through that suffering, he was going to entrust himself to God who would rescue him and not forsake him from that. This is established theology from the Old Testament that existed centuries before the coming of the Messiah. That's why Christmas carols are notoriously rich theologically. Come thou long expected Jesus, we sung this morning. Can you talk about understatements? Long expected? Eve was expecting him. (laughs) And every generation thereon was waiting for him. Abraham was promised him. Judah was promised. David was promised. They were calling out for the king to come from throughout the Psalms for generations. He was long, long expected. And when he came, he fulfilled what was said of him by the prophets. He came... And he came and he died in our place for our sins. But there is validity to the confusion. Because not everything that he was prophesied to do has been done. And that's why when he rose from the dead and he conquered sin and death and he went away, he promised to return. And he will come back and he will return. And the things that were prophesied of him that have not yet been done... The establishing of his kingdom, 
the establishing of his throne, the glory of God filling the earth, the defeat of all of his enemies, that is still to come. And because, as we've seen these last few weeks, the prophecies concerning his first coming have been fulfilled, then how much more can we now trust that the prophecies concerning the second coming, the things still to be fulfilled, will ultimately be fulfilled? So yes, Christmas is a time when we think about baby Jesus as opposed to King Jesus. But it's a time when we're thinking about the baby who's going to become the king. It's a time when we're thinking eschatologically as well. It's a time when we are thinking that he fulfilled those prophecies and he will fulfill all the ones that remain. And as such, all glory will go to him and we will entrust ourselves to him. Because he is the God who fulfills all prophecy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that your word gives us through fulfilled prophecy. The Messiah really was long expected. He came as God and king, as man and servant. The great paradox of his messiahship that he came and suffered and he came and was victorious Father may we cry out to you and trust you as he did knowing that in him we have salvation knowing that he is our intercessor and knowing that all glory will ultimately go to him Amen.